Well, good morning. Good to see you all once again. Been a little bit longer this time between visits, but uh, good to be back. Uh, see, Sonny, it wasn't as bad as you were thinking. You done good. <laughs> In fact, I was thinking uh, thinking about it. It occurred to me during his uh, sermonette, uh, thinking about how some people do see uh, God as a kind of like a genie in a bottle. Christ is our genie in a bottle. We call on him. He gives us all these things, these financial blessings and this. I'm not saying Christ never blesses. He does, of course. But uh, to see God as a slot machine or uh, Jesus as a genie in a bottle, I was thinking about it, you know, really, it's kind of the opposite. We should be at his beck and call. He calls on us and pop, there we are to do his will. Uh, that's a uh, you know that's that that is the way a lot of people not everybody but a lot of people kind of get it backward I think but anyway we are at his beck and call he, he calls upon us to act and we act and that and that really is uh, what I want to talk about today so I think the the sermonette tied in pretty well with uh, uh, what I have to say uh, I want to begin in in Psalm 119 begin there in verse 1 Blessed are the undefiled in the way who in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity, or as the New Living Translation says, do not compromise with evil. They do not compromise with evil. The title of the sermon today is Don't Compromise. You don't compromise with evil. Do not compromise God's word. Do not compromise with truth. You know, this world is built on compromise in a lot of ways. And, and you know, there is a place for compromise, but not when it comes to the word of God. Let's go on in, uh, in, over to verse 97. Verse 97, same Psalm, 119. The psalmist says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. He's not boasting about his understanding and saying, just look at me, how wiser I am, how more understanding I have than other people. No, no. No, the emphasis here is on God and the testimonies, the commandments, his law, his principles, his standards that he has revealed. That's where the emphasis, he's emphasizing those standards, and he's saying by adhering to those standards, then we are made wiser. We do have more understanding. We can deal with life in a way better than those who do not have the law, and the, the commandments of God can deal with life. He goes on to say, I understand more than the ancients, verse 100, because I keep your precepts. I have refrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments. Have, in other words, have not compromised your standards. You see, that is the key to wisdom. It is the key to success in life. And by that, I'm not talking about amassing wealth. I'm talking about living life the way God would have us live it, to follow that path. That path is set forth by His law. And we're called upon to never compromise. And yet we live in a world that's basically built on 
compromise. You look around, you look around the world, and you see that uh, everything depends on concession. For example, and, and it's not always bad. For example, we have Congress. Uh, people get together in in the government, and they discuss the laws that they you know want to pass this law or that law. They have their ideas on what will make the system work. And they fight, and they argue, and they give their speeches, and they get on television, each side telling how dumb the other side is and why they're so much smarter, and all of that. So we've, we've seen it time and time again. And then they come together, they form a committee, say, okay, let's, let's work this thing out. Uh, we can't come to full agreement. So they sit down together, and each side has to compromise. They have to make concessions. So, okay, you, we're not going to give you that. Well, what about, can't we go this far with it? Well, okay. But if you're going to do that, we're going to have to have this. So they come up with this really beautiful package that accomplishes nothing. But uh, anyway, that's, that's the way it works. That's the way it works. You know, a, a, lot, of, a lot of really well-meaning, good people have gotten in office, and they've, they've gotten up and given their, their speeches, and this is where I stand, this is what I believe in, this is what I stand for, and this is what I'm going to do for you when I get in office. And then they get in office and they find out it's not as simple as just passing some law. They can write up, they can write up a bill, present the bill, doesn't get passed. Uh, and this happens. And then they wind up in a committee and discussing what he wants. And he finds out that the other side doesn't want that. And so they, what do they do? They have to make both sides start making concessions. And then the next thing you know, uh, his supporters are saying, yeah, but you made the most concessions. You went too far. You didn't, stay, you didn't keep your word. And uh, that's, that's one of many reasons that I don't want to be a politician. <laughs> but that's the way it works. This world is built on compromise. You know, uh, uh, even internationally, that's what President Trump, and I can't believe I'm saying those words. It wasn't all that long ago. You know, when, you remember when he announced his candidacy? I kind of laughed and said, <laughs> That, that'll never happen. Now I'm speaking of the words, President Trump. Now, you know, when, when President Trump, uh, in the run-up to the election, how he talked about making deals. He wrote the book, The Art of the Deal. And how that we've made some, some horrible deals, to use his words. Horrible, horrible deals. That I can tell you. Or, or that I can tell you. Horrible deals. And what he means is that when, when we have negotiated with uh, some of our friends abroad in making these trade deals that we have made too many concessions that's what he's talking about and you know both sides have to make concessions but when he says horrible deals that's what he's referring to and that is the way the world works and it's not necessarily a bad thing you have to that, that's the way it operates but when it comes to the Word of God when it comes to God's standards you cannot be making any kind of deal. It's not, it, it's not up for compromise. Uh, you can't meet the enemy halfway. No, you, you take God or at His word and we do what God says. We follow His commandments. We adhere to His way of life. We accept His provisions for salvation and we do not compromise with that. There's no other way around it. Now, you know, the book of Revelation, that, that message there, for all, all of the uh, elaborate scenery we see in the book of Revelation, 
all the apocalyptic language and all of the imagery that comes up out of that uh, as we read through the book and you, we imagine some of those things that John must have seen. Uh, really, a major central theme of Revelation is do not compromise. That's a major message. It runs from one end to the other. Uh, let's go right to the end of the book. I'll show you what I'm talking about. In Revelation chapter 22, Revelation 22, right at the end, verse 18, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, talking about the book of Revelation, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. What does that mean? You don't add to it. It means there are no concessions with somebody else who wants something else to be said. And then he goes on to say, And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. So it's a very serious issue, isn't it? You don't compromise with the enemy. You don't say, okay, well, we'll ignore that part. But we'll accept this part over here. Now, will you go that far with me? Well, the enemy will go as far as you will let the enemy go. That's a fact. But, you know, underlying this, what is said here, and this refers to the prophecy of the book of Revelation and the message that's in the book of Revelation. We'll look a little bit closer at it in a few moments. But this, there is a, a universal principle here. And it says simply, do not deviate from his word and do not permit any deviation from his word. That's the message. It means simply no compromise. No concession to falsehood or godless behavior. Period. You know, that's a very simple message. I'm preaching to the choir. You know the message. You understand it. And yet we need to remind ourselves of it anyway, don't we? No compromise. God demands that we follow his path. He demands it. He commands it. And he says, you don't deviate out of it. His law defines the boundaries of the way we're to live our lives, the way to, we're to walk. Go back to Revelation chapter 1. I want to see, see if I can follow this theme beginning in chapter 1 just to get the, uh, the overview starting in right there. And verse 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants, things that must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. So there's, that's the order. It comes from God. It comes from God Most High, given to Jesus Christ, who then gives it to his angel, who gives it to John, and then John puts it in writing. So that's the order right there. And uh, he says, Who bore witness of the word of God, speaking of John, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. He says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. And what he says the time is near, uh, what, we've talked about this before, perhaps you will recall, that yes, there was a message for the immediate listeners. They were facing the, the imperial Rome and the persecuting powers from imperial Rome and, of course, the imperial cult, which enforced emperor worship, uh, probably in an earlier period, but nevertheless, the, you, see, you see the principle there. And, of course, we find these things expressed in terms of two beasts, one coming out of the sea, one coming out, out of the land, uh, later called the beast and the false prophet. 
And not only did they exist in a form in that time, they also, we find, will exist in our time, or at least in the end time, because you see them finally being thrown into a lake of fire. Speaking of two systems that persecute God's people. And this whole book deals with persecution. And guess what the theme underlying that is? In spite of it all, through it all, in all the suffering, in all the persecution, even when martyrdom comes, remain faithful, do not compromise. That's the theme, a major theme in the book of Revelation. Let's go on over. He says, uh, still in the same chapter, when Christ in vision reveals this to him, he says, uh, he says in verse 11, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see... Write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Bergamus, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So in chapters 2 and 3, we have those seven messages, seven letters, brief, brief epistles you might call them, to these seven churches. Now there's no reason to think that those seven churches are not seven literal actual churches that existed at that time, and that those messages literally went to those churches. Uh, there's no good reason to think. In other words, you can't. It, it's, it's theoretical. Some have, have assumed, have believed that these seven churches represent seven eras across church history. But that's a theory. That's a theory. And if it turns out to be true, okay. But it is theoretical. But here, here is something critically important for us. Rather than theorize about possibilities, we can look some, at something here that's not just a possibility, it's a reality. It, to every one of these churches, he says this. Let me read it in chapter 2 to the church of Ephesus. He says down in verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the... His era? His era of the one true church? No, no. To the churches. That means you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, regardless what era of time you live in, that means you living today in the 21st century, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are to hear what the Spirit says to all seven churches. The messages are for you, for all of us. So theorizing about eras and how this church represents that movement or whatever, that's, that's theory. It really doesn't do any of it. It's interesting. It doesn't accomplish a whole lot, does it? So what we need to do is listen, listen intently at what the Spirit says to the churches. Now I'm not going to go into it in depth, but I'm going to highlight a few things that are said here in order to underscore the theme, which is in the title of this sermon. Uh, to the church of Ephesus, let's just read some of this here. It says these things. It says, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candles, uh, lampstands, he says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and that you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Now, remember, this is the church at Ephesus. Apparently, John is writing quite a bit after the time Paul, back in the book of Acts, met with the Ephesian elders. The same church. I want to go back to the book of Acts, back to, uh, that's in Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20, and read a little bit here. This is what Paul says. Now, he's about to go away, and he knows 
in addressing the Ephesian elders, he calls together the leaders of the churches, probably house churches, in Ephesus. And he knows that he's probably going to his death. He will not see them again. And so he meets with several different groups as he travels along his way, knowing that they will not see him again. And so he wants to admonish them. He wants to encourage them because of things he knows will begin to happen once he's gone. And here's what he says. Let's read it. Uh, take up the account there. Uh, beginning in verse... Uh, uh, well, verse 17 says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count, it my, count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy, and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you, all, that, that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. And what he, he goes on to explain what he means here. Verse 27 says, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. In other words... If, if, if you go astray now, you can't say it's because I didn't teach you the truth. I didn't hold back anything. I gave it all to you. Night and day for the time that I spent with you. That's what he's saying here. He says, therefore, verse 28, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, now this is, the, this is what I want to come to right here. I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And this is his admonition. Also from among yourselves, he explains further. From among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. You know what he's saying here? He's saying even from among the shepherds that are supposed to be feeding the flock, even from among them, perverse men will rise up and begin to teach error and begin to lead people astray. And notice what else he says here. He says, therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. See, Paul knew. Paul knew that once he was out of the way, that there were certain men out there who would begin to take advantage of this new situation. And some perhaps even among the elders. May, I don't know about in that church, but there were people out there who would come along as shepherds claiming that they're going to feed the church of God and yet they were wolves. They were wolves. He knew this was happening and would happen, that is. So now, brethren, I commend you to, the, to God 
and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So here, here is the warning. He says, this is going to happen. I know it will happen. He's, he'd seen it before. And he knew his influence was very strong in the churches of Asia. And that once he was out of the way, people would start to take advantage, as it were, of that situation. Knew that. Now then, let's look at what happened to the church at Ephesus by the time John wrote. We just read it, didn't we? It looks like they did a pretty good job. He said, you've tried those who claim they're apostles and are not. Put them to the test. You did not accept them. Sounds like those Ephesian elders must have done a pretty good job in shepherding the flock. In keeping the flock uh, protected from the wolves. They had done. Notice what I just read to you, though. In uh, Revelation 2, when he says, I know your works, your labor. You, you've tried those who say they're apostles or not or found them liars. You have persevered, have patience, have labored for my namesake, have not become weary. He's not saying that this is what you're now doing. No, no. He says this is your history. You have a, an excellent history. You've done this in the past. But now, now, things are changing. Listen. He says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now things are changing. They did all this wonderful stuff in the past. They did not allow false apostles to gain the foothold in their congregations. Did not allow it. Now... They've lost their first love. And what does that mean? Why, does he, why is this such a problem? Why does he say, I have this against you? And why does he go on to admonish them to regain that first love? Because by losing their first love, they have opened themselves wide open to compromise with the enemy. That's why. Now then they will begin to accept some of those false apostles that come along. Now then, when the false teachers show up, they'll say, well, maybe we could consider that. Well, I know that's not what we learned from the Apostle Paul, but, you know, maybe this is a, a deeper revelation now. Because they lost their first love. Opened themselves up to compromise with God's truth. That was the problem there. Let's move on to one of the other churches, the second church there, the persecuted church, the church of Smyrna. Basically, he doesn't say anything against this church, except he just says, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. In other words, you know, some good things. He commends this church for the work that they have done, for remaining faithful. And he says, but listen, persecution is coming your way. Some of you are going to be killed for my name's sake. Remain faithful. So it's just an encouragement, it's a, an admonition to, to stay the course, to keep doing what you're doing and don't compromise. Again, the, the emphasis is that persecution is coming. Now, you know, if, if Christ were a genie in the bottle, all they have to do is rub the bottle and call on him to kill the persecutors. Get rid of them. Hey, give us, give us a better place over here where we don't have to endure all that stuff. Just put a wall around us so we don't have to have these persecutors come along, these wolves in sheep clo sheep's clothing, and we don't have to put up with any of that. But you see, Christ is not the genie in the bottle. His son is so excellently brought out. 
He's not. That's not the way. That's not the relationship we have with him. So here is an admonition: Don't compromise. Stay the course. And then we come to this next church, the church in Pergamos, and he says. Verse 13, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and did not, notice in the past, did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my, favorite, uh, my, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. You know, the obvious intent here is to show this, this is what, the devil himself is very active where you are, and you've even, one at least Antipas, probably others as well, was put to death, and yet you have remained faithful. So he's commending them for their faithfulness. But he says, but I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. The doctrine of Balaam. You know, he, he's not saying you as a church, all of you, no, no, no. It's not all of them. They've been faithful for the most part. But they have certain ones there who hold the doctrine of Balaam. And he warns them because he shows them that this can be a real threat, a real problem. It can lead to compromise with the truth of God. But what is this doctrine of Balaam? You know, people have speculated about that. We don't know exactly uh, what it was in that day. Some have thought that perhaps it was an early form of Gnosticism. Gnosticisms were their, their, their philosophy of a radical uh, distinction between physical and spiritual. You know, all physical things are evil. Uh, everything that's material and physical is evil. Only God is good and that spark of divinity within you which comes from God, that's the only thing that's good. And everything else is evil. So since your body is evil, uh, since everything about you physically is evil, hey, just let the body have its way. Just, just go ahead and attend those, those guild feasts where all kinds of immoral activity and idolatry and things like that are taking place. Just, you know, that's just the body anyway. Perhaps, perhaps, we don't know, perhaps that's one of the, that was the doctrine of Balaam. But uh, let's just uh, go back to, back to the book of Numbers. Back to Numbers 22. And take a look at this story of Balaam. Just briefly, we'll hit the highlights here. But what was going on there in Numbers 22 was that uh, Balak, the king of Moab, and the Moabite people were, were terrified because Israel was on their borders. And they saw what Israel, what God, using his nation Israel, what he did to these other peoples. And they didn't want to be destroyed. And they knew that they were facing destruction because this was this army, this, this whole nation uh, at their doorsteps, as it were. And so Balak said, what do we do? He came up with a plan. They knew of a certain diviner. His name was Balaam. This is King Balak of the Moabites. Knew of Balaam, who lived over... Uh, near the river Euphrates. So he sent messengers to him uh, with money because they knew that, you see Balaam evidently from what we read in the text, we get the idea very clearly that Balaam was one of those diviners. I mean it's what diviners do. They have a connection with the spirit world and they're able to somehow tap into the spirit world and get results. 
In other words, they can cause some bad things to happen for you. Or they can cause some good things, or at least uh, prevent some bad things. But anyway, Balaam wanted, or I should say, Balak wanted Balaam to come and pronounce a curse upon the people of Israel. In other words, if we can just get some plagues to befall this people, then perhaps my armies can overcome them and we'll win the battle against them. That's what we need, some good old-fashioned plagues. So he calls on Balaam to come and curse this people. Now it's interesting what Balaam says when uh, the messengers from Balak get to his doorstep. They tell him what they want, said, we've got plenty of money here. He says, well, no, of course that sounds good. And that's what, he, that's what he did. That's what diviners do. They take money for their services. And he wanted the money, of course, but he knew, he knew that he'd better not defy God's will. And as you read the text, it becomes clear that Balaam knew something about the God of Israel. He calls him Yahweh. He calls him God. And he even tells the messengers, stay here tonight and I will consult God. I will consult, consult Yahweh uh, because I can't, I'm not going against his will. And so he does. And uh, God tells him. He, he comes to him. I don't know if it's in a dream exactly how that happened. But the text tells us that God came to him and told him, Do not go back with these men. Do not. So he comes out the next day. He says, Sorry, no deal. They, they thought that was one of those horrible deals. <laughs> no deal. No deal. I can't do it. But, but why? We've got plenty of money. So I don't care. You, the, the king can give me his house full of gold and silver, but I, I'm not doing it. If God says no, that means no, and I don't go and curse these people. Because the, the penalty will be a whole lot worse than the reward of a house full of gold and silver. So he says no. Now it's been said that Balaam was Satan-possessed. I don't see anything in the text saying that. And that he couldn't do anything other than what God had instructed him to do. No, he, he could have gone and pronounced a curse and taken the money and got out of there. He could have done that. But no, he, he, it's, the way it's worded in the text, you get the clear impression that he dare not disobey God in this. So here's a man who wanted to do what God said because he knew what the consequences would be. So he didn't. And then King Balak sends back some more. Man said, you've got to come and do something. He says, let me ask again. So he asks again, and, and God says this time, says, okay, go back with them, but you are to say what I tell you to say. And so he says, okay. So he got his stuff together, and here he goes. And, uh, and it says, and it's interesting, it says God was angry with him. Wait a minute, wait a minute, you think. Didn't God just tell him to go? And now God is angry with him for going? What's going on there? Well, I, I think I know what's going on there. What's going on there is God knew Balaam's heart. and He knew that he did want to go. He did hope that there was a way he could pronounce a curse upon his people and get all that gold. So he was angry with him. Sent the angel of the Lord. This is a case when Balaam, Balaam's donkey turned around and talked to him. Why do you keep beating me like that? And Balaam did exactly what I would do if my donkey were stubborn. I, if he told my donkey told me that, I'd say, because you're so stubborn. <laughs> no, no, no. You know, if, if I used to have a donkey. When, when we were kids, we had a donkey. My brother and sister and I. 
And uh, we would ride that, that thing, and of course, uh, she knew how to get us off, too, get rid of us, get rid of us. She knew how to scrub us up against the fence, too, with barbed wire, ooh, <laughs> it was rough. And she could kick, boy, she could she kick. But anyway, uh, if that donkey had ever said a word to me, I'm telling you what, I, <laughs> I wouldn't have started answering it and carrying on the conversation with it like Balaam did. But obviously, obviously, Balaam knew that God put those words in that donkey, in that animal's mouth. He knew that his donkey didn't ordinarily carry on conversation with him. Uh, now, uh, now, if, if his name were Festus, I could understand carrying on a conversation with. But no, he. This was a this was a, a miraculous occurrence. The angel of the Lord was there blocking the path, and then the angel of the Lord appeared appeared to Balaam and told him, "You are go ahead. You can go on." But you are to say only the things that God tells you to say. So he went on. Then he got there. We'll, we'll read some of this. Uh, he, well, we won't read the whole thing. I don't want to get into the whole... He, he issues basically four prophecies. And they're all blessings. They all amount to blessings. They're not curses. He gives the first prophecy. And remember, this is a diviner... Uh, I would say, it's safe to say, this was a false prophet, and yet God speaks through him. That's interesting, isn't it? God can speak through a false prophet. Well, he can speak through a donkey. And don't any of you after services say, well, I've already seen the proof that God can sometimes speak through a jackass. <laughs> but, <clears throat> but anyway, after the first prophecy, which turns, it's really a blessing. Verse 11 Chapter 23, verse 11 says, Then Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and look, you have blessed them bountifully. This ain't working out. Look at the response, verse 12. So he answered and said, Must I not take heed to speak what the Lord, that's Yahweh, has put in my mouth? I have to do it. He says do it. I better take heed to it. I get the impression he had the, he, he had the choice. He could have chosen otherwise. But I think I get the impression here that he knew the consequences of doing otherwise. So he obeyed God. Then he issued the second prophecy. Once again, verse 25. Then Balak said to Balaam, Neither curse them at all nor bless them at all. Just, just, just shut up. Just stop. Verse 26. So Balaam answered and said, Balak... It said to Balak, said, did, did I not tell you saying all that the Lord speaks that I must do? Look, if he said curse the people, I'd, I'd do it. I want your gold. But he didn't say that. I have to do what he says do. And then comes the third prophecy. Verse 10. Then Balak's anger was aroused against Balaam, and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and look, you have bountifully blessed them these three times. Drop on down to verse 13. And Balaam, Balaam says to Balak, says, If Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord to do good or bad of my own will. What the Lord says, that I must speak. And now indeed I am going to my people. Come, I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the latter days. Oh, it gets worse for Balak. Again, this is, this is Balaam, which I think we safely say is a false prophet. 
a diviner, doing things that God does not approve of. And yet God is revealing truth through this man. He tells Baal, well, come on and let me tell you what's going to happen later. And here comes a prophecy about a coming Davidic monarch. It was fulfilled in the time of David and pointed ultimately to Jesus Christ. Let's read this one. We'll read this one beginning in verse, uh, let's just start in verse 17 there. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab. Uh-oh. <laughs> Going to batter the brow of Moab. That's, that's Balak's people. Batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. The word here in Hebrew is another name. It's a name for the early inhabitants of Moab. Verse 18. And Edom shall be a possession. Seir also his enemies shall be a possession while Israel does valiantly. Out of Jacob one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. So this is a prophecy concerning what would happen in the time of David when he conquered Moab and Edom. And it did come to pass. This is a true prophecy coming from Balaam. And of course, ultimately, it points, that, that in type points to the ultimate Davidic monarch who is Jesus Christ. And what he will do, not only in defeating Moab and, and uh, Edom, but subduing the nations. So there, there you have these things happening. And, and you know, Balak could not have been very happy. I wish I was just wouldn't have offered him anything or even thought about this. And here the guy comes and blesses Israel and tells us what's going to happen, what's going to befall us in later times. Not good. Just not good. But notice something else here. Verse, chapter 25, verse 1 says, Now Israel remained in Acacia, Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. Now that's what was referred to in the book of Revelation. We talked about the doctrine of Balaam. Now listen to what it says. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of Yahweh was aroused against Israel. And guess what happened? Plagues befell them. Yep, that's what Balak was after to begin with. He wanted this people to be cursed so that hopefully he would then stand a chance in battle against them. And he got his wish, but guess what? Balaam never pronounced a, word, a curse. He obeyed God in all of that. He obeyed God in all of it. Never did pronounce that curse that Balak wanted. Now, what happened here was, it was the... The men were something something attractive to the men of Israel was out there for them, and that led that the next step then after that was idolatry. They're drawn to the women, and then from there right into idolatrous practice, and from then of course that resulted in God Himself plaguing these people involved in that. Now there's something else. Uh, you remember it says back in Revelation. That Balaam taught Balak. Skip on over to chapter 31. One verse here I want you to focus on. Chapter 31, we see another detail that's very important here. Verse 16. It says, Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam. Ah. These women, meaning the ones who led the Israelite 
the dumb Israelite males into idolatry, caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam. He taught Balak how to get this done. To trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. So how did, how did Balak know how to do this? To get the plague that he was after? Well, Balaam, Balaam, the, you know, the guy who obeyed God and everything. The guy who would not go beyond what God said. Said, you can go to this people, but, but, you must say what I say. And Balaam says, look, Balak, I know it's making you mad, but I have to say this. And then here comes another blessing. And here comes a prophecy about what this people is going to do to you in later times. Uh, this is your fate. And yet, and yet, I guess that gold had a, had a certain ring to it. But uh, here, here you see that Bala, it was Balaam who taught Balak how to get the plague, the curse that he wanted. And it was God himself who brought it about. Well, back to Revelation. You see the point here, don't you? The doctrine of Balaam. Is this not a doctrine of compromise? Is this not a, a side door to compromise? You can walk in through the front and say, Look, look, we're obeying God. We do what God says. And yet, sometimes you think it through, you can figure out a way to slip around, can't you? Sneak around and go in through a different door and still claim to be doing what God says. So back in Revelation 2, Again, a few things I have against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols. That's not just, just eating things sacrificed to idols. That's participating in idolatry. And to commit sexual immorality. That's what Balaam, it was Balaam's counsel that got that done. That resulted in this, this, this. And what he's saying here is, you know, really, Balaam, try, in one sense you could say, Balaam tried to serve God. He obeyed God in the things he directly told him to do. Said, this you can do, this you cannot do. Yet he also tried to please the enemies of God. So what's he doing? Having the two meet. I will do what you say. I want to do what you say too. What do you call it? How do you do that without compromise? So once again, you see this theme of don't compromise running in Revelation. He goes on to say in verse 15, Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And here's that saying again. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There it is. Do we hear this? Is there any way we could be compromising today? In our modern, enlightened, 21st century world of technology and, 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 and uh, you know, things that blow, would have blown their minds. Things we have and things we know would have blown the, the minds of the ancients. Can we compromise today? Well, you see it going on all around us. You see the influences that are there, don't you? When you see mainline churches, mainline churches caving in to these agendas that are out there, 
Now we've seen it for, for, for years and years, haven't we? We've seen there's a certain, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but there is a conspiracy out there. There is a conspiracy. It's, it's operating by the devil. He has his agents. And there has been a concerted effort for a long time now, and we know it. We've seen it in our entertainment. We see it here, there, everywhere. And that is to get us to accept things that are completely unnatural and ungodly and declared so in the Word of God. And what do you see all these churches, one after the other, doing today? Accepting. Say, so, well, you know, we need to rethink that. You know, maybe we've been wrong in this whole idea here. And then you start to find ways to rewrite or reread the Word of God. Well, I think he was talking about this situation, not, not that situation. And you see that going on today. People compromising with the truth that they do have. Compromising with some of these basic moral laws of God that have been in place from the beginning. Re redefining them. And then, on top of that, on top of that, demonizing people who don't go along with it. You're an old dinosaur. You're living in the dark ages. Don't you know better than that? We're enlightened today. Our knowledge is far greater now than it was back in those old dark ages. You want to stay in the dark ages? Well, I think we need to pass laws to limit you. And don't think there's not an effort on the part of some to do just that. There are people in this world who would love to have laws that would keep me from saying that homosexual behavior is an abomination against God from this pulpit. There's some who would say, that if you say that, that's hate speech. I say it's the Word of God. And I say, if you love sinners, you don't want to tell them they're just fine like they are, do you? No. No. So there is a spirit of compromise, a spirit out there that would lead us to compromise. And when you look at the mainline churches, they're well into it. Even the things they do have known in the past. The things they did have right. Now they're compromising that. They're walking away from it. Embracing something completely unbiblical, completely foreign to the revelation of God. Well, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans here probably is the same, essentially the same thing under a different title. There's all kind of theories about what that meant back then. But it's probably the same, the, same, the same doctrine, but it has a different title, a little different approach to it. Uh, you know, the, the school of the Nicolaitans, the school of the Balaamites, you have two different groups, but at the end of the day it's the same philosophy, put it that way. And also in the next church we talks about that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. That's probably, in all probability, that's yet another form of the same philosophy. And if you, as you read through these, what it says to these churches, what Christ says to the churches, you see very clearly that the problem was compromising with the truth they had. Finding ways to, and allowing ways to come along that would cause them to make concessions with what they knew from the beginning to be true. 
and to embrace the enemy. Now that, that fits the context very well because I think what you have, what's going on here, is you have the reason there was some persecution in Asia in that time, at that time was because of the guild feasts. That's where uh, if you were employed, you, in order to, to prosper in your employment, you would need to belong to a guild feast. That's kind of like a union. I say a guild, a labor guild. Uh, and you would attend the guild feasts. Now you think, well, that's no big deal, is it? Well, see, then it was connected with idolatry. Then you have the, had the gods of the guilds, and they were honored in the feasts. And if you were living in that time, in the time when these feasts were held, you would know, if you were a follower of Jesus Christ, you should know that you can't participate in that stuff. It's idolatrous practice. But hey, somebody came along and said, well, now wait a minute. Maybe there's a way. You heard the old expression, you can have your cake and eat it too. <laughs> Maybe there's a way. Maybe there's a way. You can still be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. You still obey God. And at the same time, you can participate in the guild feasts. It's kind of like Balaam, isn't it? Sort of like the way Balaam approached things. He obeyed God. But he also got the curse on the people, found a way to do that. A loop, a little loophole there that he took. Of course, he's still guilty. So we see from one end of, to the other in the book of Revelation, this major theme of do not compromise God's truth. Do not step outside the boundaries of the path that he's laid before you. And you see it again and again. You see warnings. You see what God says to his people about coming persecutions. What the beast power will do. How some of you will be killed. How the, the beast is given power over the saints. You see Satan when he's cast down he pursues the woman, and when that fails, he pursues the remnant of her seed, those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. What's his effort, do you suppose? What's he trying to do in all of this? Well, what does Satan do? What does he do well? He deceives. He's the one who deceives the nations. So what is he doing as he pursues the remnant of her seed? The woman's offspring. That, that's, by the way, the remnant of her seed, that's us. That's God's people. That's, that's Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's what the devil wants to do, is to deceive us. Because that's what he does best, the deceiver of the nations. And, here you, and even though persecutions and even martyrdom may come your way, God says, he still holds out the promise. So you be faithful. And that's why we have these proleptic images or views of the saints in glory. A lot of people look at that, for example, just look at Revelation chapter uh, 14. You know, in chapter 13, you read about those who receive the mark of the beast. Which, uh, we, it, that's identified as the name of the beast or the number, all meaning the same thing, and it's in the forehead and in the right hand. And then you see this other group in chapter 14, it says, Then I looked... And behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having the Father's name written on their foreheads. 
Now, we just read about another group that had a name written in their foreheads. A name represented by either a mark or a number. Meaning they had given over their allegiance to the beast. Here are those with the father's name in their foreheads. Given, they've given their allegiance to the father. And they're with the lamb on Mount Zion. This is, this is not a picture of a secret rapture or anything like that. This is a proleptic picture of people under suffering. You see, this was designed for these people suffering. In fact, for those who will suffer in the latter days under the persecuting powers, this view tells us this is your reward. This is what you are going to. This is what you will have if you don't compromise. If you stay the course, remain true. Hold the testimony of Jesus. Continue keeping the commandments of God. Don't compromise. And you will have that. You'll be among that number. Pictured as 144,000, but that you'll be among them. It's not just a literal 144,000. That's, that, that's a symbol of the whole church, the whole people of God, the glorified people of God. That's what we have to look forward to. So, the admonition to us as we approach this book of Revelation, as far as that goes, the Bible itself, since the Bible is the inspired Word of God, that's our instruction book. We live by it. We take its commandments seriously because they're God's commandments. So, in closing, I'll just remind you of that little exhortation. It's in every one of the seven churches. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.